You're listening to the Strong Towns Podcast. Hey, everybody, this is Chuck Marone. Welcome back to the Strong Towns Podcast. Back at the end of May, uh, we wrote an open letter to the city of Springfield, Massachusetts. Some of you have been with us for a while on the podcast. Remember, a couple of years ago, we did a podcast right after a visit I had to Springfield, Massachusetts. And during that visit, a mother and uh, two kids uh, were struck by a driver crossing a street, State Street, between the public library and the parking lot that served the public library. Uh, one little girl was killed. The other one was seriously injured. Obviously, family, you know, traumatized, uh, something they'll never get over. I, along with many in the city, have been waiting for the city to actually do something to address this. It's a, it's a known problem. Uh, there have been other people struck and seriously hurt. I think there was one other death along this section, if I'm correct on that. But there have been multiple incidents here, uh, yet the city's done nothing. And so we released this letter, essentially indicating to the city, like, hey, we'll come and help you figure out how to deal with this. We'll help you move it to the next step. But if you don't want to do that, we're going to also volunteer pro bono uh, to work with whoever wants to bring a lawsuit against you the next time someone's hit out here, because there there will be a next time. The local newspaper has responded or, or interviewed city staff, and, and they have a response to this now. I wanted to bring our good friend and our longtime member, Don Kostelek, on to the podcast. He is an AICP planner, transportation planner with Alta Planning Design. For many years, ran his own planning firm out of Asheville, North Carolina, but now is in Boise, Idaho. Don, welcome to the podcast. Thanks, Chuck. Good to be here. Now, people butcher my last name and it doesn't bother me, but is it is it Kostelek or Kostelek? We've never actually cleared that up. No, you got it right in terms of how I pronounce it. The native Slovene is Kostelet, so I don't expect <laughs> anybody to do that. Okay, okay. Is that that your ancestry is uh, Slovak? Slovenia. Okay, fascinating. Some people may recognize you because you are a frequent commenter on our on our social media stuff, but you also and and we've shared quite a few of these. You also do your own videos, just kind of impromptu out on the street, showing people you know what's going on and and how to look at things differently. Can you talk a little bit about the work that you do and what's kind of inspired you to to do those videos and be involved in that way? Well, I started getting involved more on the design side in my first professional job uh, with a highway agency out here in Idaho. And we had about a $2 million a year standalone investment program in bicycle and pedestrian facilities. And at the time, our uh, our lead design group within the, the agency really didn't want to deal with those projects. And, uh, you know, I had worked in that realm uh, on the planning side. I had kind of a hybrid master's degree in engineering and planning. And I was like, well, I'll take it on, you know, give me a, give me a PE to be the resident engineer on these and we'll just go do them. And that's really how I got involved from being a general transportation planner into more focused elements of, of design, especially for active transportation. 
And I guess part of it, too, I have a journalism background. So in terms of getting thoughts on paper, getting them in videos and through all of that, just being exposed to these subtleties and the nuances of the walking and biking environment that you don't really pick up on, you know, if you're driving in a car or if you're engineering them and you're you have windshield perspective, you don't pick up on those nuances. And where I really started to cut my teeth in that was working on our ADA transition plan here in Boise about a decade ago. And that's really where I got exposed to a lot of these background elements of tort liability and these claims related to design and and guidance and manuals like you're talking about with the Springfield example. Right. There is a sense in the profession, and I, I remember this back in my early days doing engineering, that in Minnesota, we had the blue book back then. It's now the green book. Uh, we had our own local, you know, update to that, that the State Department of Transportation had put together. There was a, there was a sense that if you didn't follow the blue book, you were going to get sued. You were going to lose your license. Your client was going to lose millions of dollars. And even if a situation you knew was unsafe, if it followed the book, you were okay. I don't know if that's been your experience as well amongst, you know, working with professionals, but, but talk a little bit about that and, you know, where that assumption is wrong. Well, what I learned in, in doing some of that early ADA work and researching that with both our attorneys and the folks that were helping us with design was that there are several reasons to make a design exception within any project. And that's simply because one manual of five or 600 pages can't deal with every situation you're going to encounter. Uh, we saw this a lot when I lived in Asheville, North Carolina, where the terrain was such that meeting some of those elements, whether it was in the bike realm, the ped realm, or just building a bridge, was not able to get there. And what we discovered through that ADA-related research was the, the whole issue of documenting when you have to make design exceptions. And that's what the time I came across uh, this 2004 document from Ashto. It's in the same it's in the same green tone as the green book, a, a guide for achieving flexibility in highway design. And there's a whole chapter in there on legal liability and highway design. And it just talks about that whole issue of uh, design decisions and fully evaluating and documenting design decisions. And I think it, to me, Chuck, it comes back to there's a a, a culture within many public agencies, not just in our in our realm, that we don't we, we kind of encourage following the book, following the manual, because you know a state DOT is dealing with thousands of miles of roads, so I understand the need for consistency, but we haven't empowered the problem solvers, the engineers, the people that can look at this stuff in three dimensions and tailor designs to it. We haven't empowered them to do that. Instead, we've empowered them to kind of stick to a manual and not want to go beyond it. And the fact is the, the tort liability history says the exact opposite. You are free to make engineering judgment. And the court stands behind that because of that PE license after after that name. And the important thing is document it. So when they, somebody does make a claim, you've said, well, no, it wasn't done out of negligence. It was done with reason. And the following reasons are, are why we made that exception. That to me seems like such a logical path in so many instances. Right. That is where I kind of struggled. Granted, I was a young idealistic engineer just out of school, 
But there was, there was this part of me that went into engineering to solve problems. And as you go through your courses, you know, you're given and you're taught problem solving techniques. And then when you get out, you go to work, you know, and do that engineering training apprenticeship to get your license. And you're kind of reinforced over and over again that no, you're, you're not supposed to actually think. You're just supposed to apply, uh, this standard that's been worked up for you. I found that very, very frustrating. I found that it ran counter to, you know, what I thought my calling was as a professional. Yeah, and what what irks me a little about it is what I would call I sometimes a double standard in that realm of, you know, we'll make a design exception. We'll default to the minimum width for a bike lane or the minimum width for a sidewalk, but you try to talk somebody off the ledge to go from 12 to 11 foot travel lanes and all of a sudden you get kind of the design manual put back in your face, and I'm sitting there going, well, wait a minute, let's, let's look at all these factors holistically. Um, I had a, a great example two weeks ago. I was in Iowa in a suburb of Des Moines working on an ADA transition plan, and the uh, city engineering firm working with them had a very difficult intersection that they were trying to make it right from an ADA compliance perspective. And Chuck, this was the most... <laughs> the most fault I've ever seen put into six corners at an odd intersection to try to make it fit the standards, but understand the trade-offs they had to make. And the engineer this week, as an example, sent me the memo he wrote to go into the file of why they had to make design exceptions. And I'm sitting there going, yes, (laughs) this is how it should be done. Let's encourage this. And I was incredibly complimentary of them of going, this is, I want to use this when I give presentations to others of this is how to think, not just in this realm um, of ADA compliance, but how to think in in the broader engineering realm as well. And I think you're, what you've stated with the Springfield and the library example is exactly that. I want to talk about this one because I want to get your reaction to the city's reaction. But for the people who haven't seen this one, let, let's lay it out a little bit. On one side of the street, you have the public library, which is a, a big, grand building, uh, public place, draws a lot of people. There's a children's section, uh, draws a lot of families with kids. You've got four lanes, and they're, you know, the wide, highway-scaled lanes. Uh, you've got some recovery zone on the edge. And then you've got, on the opposite side of the street, a parking lot. There's sidewalks on both sides. There is a tendency, and you can see it with the desire path and the ground where uh, people have walked and we went back and documented how, you know, it's been that way for a decade now. People just walk straight across. Uh, there is a signalized intersection, uh, 200 feet away. People choose not to walk down to that cross and then walk back. They just walk directly across. Talk a little bit about human nature and how engineers and planners and designers either take into account or ignore human nature. Well, yeah, it comes back to the basics of desire lines. And we could probably go back into, uh, I don't know, the Roman empire and talk about how they were done that way. Or as we talk about here in the U S you know, there's still hiking trails that were the original desire lines of the native Americans going on hunting expeditions. And if if we're supposed to be designing for humans, which I think most people would say they are, 
you know, we need to find a way to accommodate that. We have an almost carbon copy example of your situation here in downtown Boise. Um, and to my knowledge, luckily, I don't know that it resulted in some fatalities, but it's been an issue that's been mitigated. And that was they built kind of a super block county courthouse downtown. And it fronts uh, a street that's part of the downtown couplet managed by the state DOT. And the state's interest was to keep traffic flowing and not muddle it up with with traffic signals. And again, it's like this one. There's a traffic signal with a crossing you know, within a couple hundred or even a hundred yards. Well, the desire lines were such due to the demand of a courthouse, just like your civic complex, to have a crossing there. And, you know, it took some time. And the design is there that it kind of channelizes some pedestrians into the right crossing at that location. But the fact is they accommodated those desire lines. And so there's definitely a will to do it. It's synced up with the other traffic signals on that corridor. So the whole thing you pointed out about vehicular delay and things like that, that can also be mitigated if that's a concern. And that's what I saw on that one is it just seems like doesn't seem like there's a willingness to prioritize safety over the movement of cars. Let me read you a little bit from the Mass Live, their local reporting on this thing we wrote and the conversation they're having with the city. Here's what they wrote, and this is from June 27th. In comments to Mass Live, city officials said the unofficial crossing is a source of concern, but that there's no practical way to make it safe for pedestrians. Here's a quote from their director of public works. Do I want to try to find some solution? Yeah, but I never want to go against the rules and regulations of what we should do and expose the city to more problems. So let's break that down. There's no practical way to make it safe for pedestrians. What do you think that assertion is about? And would you agree that there's no practical way to make it safe? Well, one, no, I wouldn't agree with that. I, if you were talking about, you know, a, an at-grade crossing of an interstate highway or I-95, I might give in to that a little bit. But no, we're talking about a surface street. We're talking about an area that, you know, prior to some of this was safe for pedestrians. And you probably wouldn't have to go that far in walking around that facility to find other design practices that probably predated a lot of these design standards that were there for making it safe. And I go back to that, you know, AASHTO achieving flexibility in highway design document where it, it talks about things about lane width and level of service and how they're not as sacrosanct as the design profession tends to view them as. So there's a lot in there that just says, no, there are ways to do this. There's ways to, you know, balance or prioritize other modes. And I, you, you, you probably have dozens of examples of other places you've seen that have done it. How about um, this idea of we don't want to go against rules and regulations of what we should do and expose the city to more problems? Are there any rules and regulations that engineers are subjected to that are, in a sense, you know, laws along the lines of, you know, don't steal, don't murder. Are there <laughs> such things that engineers are, are confined with or, you know, when you talk about rules and regulations, it sounds like something that is sacrosanct. Are there any such things that we're bound to as a profession? To me, I look at it in my realm of, of, I try to go back. If I, if I don't have 
clarity in that realm and, and look at what my own code of ethics asked me to do. And I always think back to what I've seen referenced on the American Society of Civil Engineers, that safety should be held paramount. And to me, that should be the marching orders in there, whether I'm a, a planner, whether I'm a, a delivery truck driver, whether I'm a, a licensed engineer to do that. And I think that's why, except for in, in very rare cases where states may have rigid laws about following something that is labeled as guidance, and that's what you know the Ashto Green Book and, and even elements of MUTCD talk about, it's guidance, and that you are free to exercise engineering judgment in that realm. And that to me is what needs to be valued. And if, if they went through and did a very thorough analysis and came back with, you know, some engineering judgment and said that, I think I might be willing to give the argument a little more credence, but I would also go back and, and talk about the fundamental elements of that. Slowing cars down does not threaten lives versus not accommodating pedestrians there does threaten lives. If that's not the top level of the safety pyramid, then I don't know what is. And I think that's what we tend to confuse. I saw an article today uh, from, from rural New Mexico, and it was, it was just a mess in terms of them saying, well, the lower, the lower traffic volumes in rural areas are why we have more deaths, but the increasing traffic and, and more congestion is also why we have more deaths. And I'm going, wait a minute. No, you can't have it. <laughs> you can't. You can't have it both ways there. And we know just from basic physics, low-speed crashes generally are not fatal unless there are other extenuating circumstances. Is it the 85-year-old person in, a, in an old Volkswagen bug that there's just other factors there versus a 35-year-old person that's in shape in a Volvo uh, there? So to me, it's like, let's go back to that first canon of prioritizing safety and see what unfolds there. Um, and we joke, you may have seen some of the, the banner back and forth on Twitter of like, well, if we slow cars, we'll get phone calls. <laughs> right, okay, well, right. <laughs> is the safety of people more important than the volume of phone calls you receive? And that's where you need, that's where you need elected officials to, to step in and be understanding and supportive because if they end up getting the calls, they put that, that pressure on the designer or the planner or whoever's making that decision. And, and they don't feel as empowered to do it. And, and I've worked with traffic engineers that, you know, you get them with coffee or you get them in the room together and they're talking great stuff. They're talking about the things we talk about. You get them up before an elected body and it kind of defaults back to this position that we're seeing there. So that's, that's what I'd like to know. What's that backstory there? So one of the other parts of this uh, story, the mayor is quoted as supporting the public works director. And he said uh, that, He's has concerns and objects to any structural changes to the roadway that would slow or halt traffic. Later on, uh, the public works director makes a similar statement uh, where he says uh, the idea of adding a signalized crossing or traffic light, uh, which is not what I would do, but that's one of the straw men that they put up. It would cause severe backups during rush hour. And here's a quote, direct quote. It would probably end up being a traffic nightmare. You mentioned this pyramid, you know, what, what is the most important thing? But yet we see all the time where the free flow of traffic is considered paramount. 
And I think if you ask engineers, they would, they would actually say, that's what is the most safe thing. Where's, what's the confusion there? Because I, I agree with you. It, it seems like when cars are going slower, that's actually safer. Where are we getting our nomenclature crossed here? There's this default position that we're here to reduce crashes. And I think if you're talking in an interstate highway context where the travel speeds are so high, the reduction of crashes in that environment, in my opinion, has a much more direct correlation with reduction in fatalities. Reduction of crashes on urban streets to me, isn't the same. And where I've seen a a lot of this get cross is we will prioritize eliminating crashes from downtown streets. Well, those are eliminating motorist inconvenience crashes. We don't want to have mirror dings, so we'll do 12-foot travel lanes, or we don't want to have things that will slow the motorist if there's a crash during the peak hour. That's where we get cross is we just will tell politicians, well, we're here to reduce crashes. That's why we need these lanes and these sync signals and all of that. And not realizing that the fatal factor goes up when we increase speed. So I think that's one part of it. I would also look at it in terms of peak hour congestion. Well, is the peak hour of a library eight o'clock in the morning? I've not seen a peak hour of a library that's eight o'clock in the morning. So that is out of the equation. The AM peak period is the PM peak period, a peak hour for a library. I don't know. I'd have to go in and look at the trip generation manual and, and see what's happening there. But again, you're dealing with 15, 20 minutes of peak period time that you're not willing to increase delay a little bit for the safety of people crossing. That to me is a huge disconnect there. I see this all the time. And some of the most bizarre examples to me are the tourist areas like the one I live in, where we will create all kinds of redundant capacity for that one weekend when there's the music festival up the road and you know you're you're gonna have uh, fifty thousand people coming through in a very short period of time. Yet I've been to situations like that in other places, and you kind of expect delays because it's you know a big surge that doesn't happen very often. W- what is it? And I'm, I may be asking you to play psychologist here, but what is it about the you know the American experience that makes us think that? that that's the best way to handle things that, that all of a sudden, you know, uh, peak periods of time become the, the design criteria. Well, I think we've basically through investments, through political speeches, uh, through engineering standards have basically told motorists, you should not experience delay under any circumstances. And an example, you talked about special events. I was at TRB one year And they were talking about all the traffic management around the Olympics. And they were talking about this was right after the London Olympics, I think. And there was a a British guy up there. He's like, you American politicians, they're so funny. He goes, you know, during the Atlanta Olympics, it's like, we promise you there will be no traffic delay. And he's like, and in the UK, (laughs) we say, we say, there's going to be delay. You're going to have to deal with it. We'll try to mitigate it, but you should expect delay. And so to me right there is, two different sets of values. The, the example that I've been following for years, and, and you know Joe Minicozzi really well, and, and the stuff in Asheville, the I-26 connector there, you know, an $800 million project that <laughs> really um, doesn't fit the context of the city, 
doesn't really solve the issues that that it's ascribing to solve. But when you read through the documentation, it says this highway, this especially this bridge that's the focus of what they're trying to address, has a critical crash rate that's above the state average. Well, what, let's break that down. In, in at least what I could find in the public records online, there is not a single motorist fatality on that bridge over like a 10-year period of time. And so let's break that down. <laughs> yeah, there's, there's rear-end crashes. There's speed differential issues. Um, but as I told a reporter recently, the widening and expansion of that project means fatalities will rise. It's basic physics. And in fact, on that section of Interstate Bridge, there's been two pedestrian fatalities there because at some point in the past, the city and the state cut off a pedestrian overpass that forced people from a housing project to have to cross an interstate to get downtown. And there's four pedestrian fatalities on a four-lane road that spurs off of that interstate that nobody's raising a red flag about. There's not a dime in the stip to address that. So that's where, to me, the safety argument doesn't hold water if we're really prioritizing mitigation of motorist delay crashes, not mitigation of fatal crashes. I wrote a, a couple of years ago about some data that, and I can't remember what insurance company put this out, but some insurance company that does auto insurance, it wasn't Geico, but it was someone else who put out this report that said Massachusetts was the most dangerous state in the union for driving. There's more car crashes in Massachusetts per capita than any other state. I mean, it didn't take a whole lot of research to figure out what was going on. Yes, there are more fender benders and like you say, when, you know, mirrors getting swiped and, and that kind of thing in Massachusetts, there are more insurance claims, but you got to go to a state like Wyoming or Montana to look at fatalities per capita to see the highest spikes. Massachusetts was actually, I think, the second lowest in the country in terms of fatalities per capita, fatalities per mile driven, it's really low. So you have this thing where are we measuring, you know, the severity of the injury and, and dealing with that, or are we measuring just rote number of accidents? And it, it's bizarre to even say, because it seems like we should be sophisticated enough to ask that question, but for some reason we're not. Well, especially when it comes down to let's look at cost. You know, I, you know, your, your background and mine, I think we're both fiscally conservative at heart. What's really causing the exposure to both a societal and a governmental cost? It's the fatal crashes. Uh, one of the things our DOT here in Idaho does really well every year is in their, their summary of crash reports. They have a table in there of what the per crash cost is from a fatal crash all the way down to a property damage only. Crash, and so you're talking about a property damage only cost of three or four thousand dollars, on up to several million dollars for the cost of a fatality, and then they break it down by pedestrian and bicyclist crash costs in there. And so when we're trying to make a statement of why state funds should go toward better facilities for walking and biking, we point back to that and go, there's a $160 million cost to the state of Idaho every year from pedestrian and bicyclist crashes. We're a small state, and we have that kind of cost exposure in that realm. And so to me, it would, yeah, let's go back and attempt to look at 
yeah, do minor crashes go up? Yeah, but they're $3,000 property damage only versus, you know, what's the cost of the one fatality and, and, and the, the issue that's been the subject of that debate? Let's put that back on, on the fiscal conservatives of the world and, and the politicians who claim that and really break down the numbers for them. Your insurance piece also um, early on as I was researching what it would take for the agency I was working with to set up a bike fleet for employees to use because in Boise we had a green belt system. You you had some good bike routes where you could get there and, and let's set up a kind of an early bike share for it. And I, because of that, started reaching out to our insurance providers. And it was funny. One of the comments they said is the most liability you can get as a municipality is to own a park. <laughs> right. That's where they have the, the, the biggest set of issues. And that's kind of I, I remember the phrase about how that's kind of the way those rates are sometimes set. So it didn't even appear to me at the time that the insurance agency was all that concerned about, you know, this roadway realm that they were talking about. They were concerned about liability and other realms. I want to ask you about liability because that was the, the last thing that they brought up. And let me quote from their public works director. He, he said in the piece. Quote, we have to make it safe because if one person does it and gets hurt, I have to justify why I'm doing stuff that's against kind of the Bible of traffic design. If I'm going to get sued, I want to have the rules and regulations behind me. I can't tell you how many times I ran into this. I, I had one one roadway that was just kind of bizarre. It was over a decade ago now. And the city engineer, who's a good friend of mine, who actually is a really kind, nice, decent person, uh, there was a old uh, road that served a resort and it didn't meet standards. I mean, it was like 20 feet wide and, and the trees, you know, these old pine trees were right up close to it. They wanted the city to take it over. And he came in and said, it's going to have to be 36 feet wide. We're going to have to have 20 foot clear zones on each side. All these old trees are going to have to go. And what we got thrown back in our face was, you know, it's liability. If we don't follow the city's standards, if we don't do this, someone's going to get killed and it's going to be, there's going to be liability. So for, for me, there were two questions right off the bat. First of all, this road has been there since, you know, before the automobile has, you know, thousands of people drive it uh, every summer, like t tens of thousands, maybe hundreds of thousands over the course of a summer. Has anyone ever died or even gotten hurt on this? And of course, the answer is no. And so there's a little bit of, all right, um, what exactly are we trying to address here then? The, the second thing was more interesting. We actually said, all right, let's investigate this issue of liability. And we called the city's insurance carrier. And we went through this and we said, look, we actually think that the safety record of this street is pretty good. Um, we actually think that the design of the engineer is going to be less safe. Uh, what would you recommend we do? And they said, well, go with the one with the proven results, just document it. How do we push back on this notion of liability? And, and I, I'd like you to talk about where it comes from and, you know, maybe some experiences that you've had with liability, this issue being the stumbling block and how you overcome it. Well, I think everybody, you know, at the government level has that fear drilled into them. But I don't think and, I, you know, the, the reason I've gone and researched it is because I'm always trying to make the argument back for better changes and, and safety, you know, for all road users, but especially the vulnerable ones. And I, 
I can't go into like planning literature and talk about that to an engineer, but what I dive into is engineering literature and, and try to make that case. And we had a, a situation in Asheville a couple years ago where after a utility cut project across a state maintained road, the, the contractor, the state, whoever did not replace a crosswalk that was there. And about a month later, a woman was killed while crossing at that location. And I had an attorney call me about it. Uh, the attorney, I was saying, here's how this could have happened. One, the contractor that's re- supposed to replace pavement markings didn't do it. But if the state DOT inspector came out and signed off on it, you know, that would absolve the liability from the contractor. And the attorney said to me, point blank, he's like, well, my interest is really to try to get the contractor on the hook for this because there are significant limitations in terms of tort liability claims that a state agency can be exposed to. So one, yes, you can be exposed to liability, but in most states, that is is extremely limited in terms of the cost factor to an agency. The second one is just going into what Ashto says, and it's something you, you posted in the article today that I, I took a picture of and, and put on Facebook last night, and that was this comment, and this is from Ashto, adherence to accepted design practices such as the Ashto Green Book guidelines, they even call it guidelines, does not automatically guarantee that reasonable care was exercised in there. And so even Ashto is saying, hey, rely on your own judgment, not us. And later on in that, and I think this is the example to to lay before them in Springfield, on a project-specific basis, management of risk entails the following practices. One, careful, thoughtful evaluation of design alternatives. Two, correction of known safety deficiencies. Three, thorough documentation of the decision-making process. And four, retention of documentation for retrieval in later years. It seems pretty simple to me. And I would then say, if the liability is concerned over cars slowing down, and we know slower cars don't lead to fatalities, are you going to get sued over a fender bender because you documented that you prioritize pedestrian safety over vehicular movement? I can't see a single judge or jury ruling in favor of that in a meaningful way. I want to close by hitting on something that you mentioned earlier, but but kind of circling back to this idea of the vulnerability of people and populations that are vulnerable. And I, I think sometimes in our, our politically charged environment that has a, a certain connotation to it that, that I don't think is wrong, but maybe is, is different than the one I'm trying to make. If you're encased in, you know, two tons of steel with airbags and, and uh, seatbelts, et cetera, you're quite a bit less vulnerable and exposed than the person, you know, walking across the street in just a, a human kind of way. I look at like the comments of the mayor saying, well, people should take responsibility for their actions. They they should walk down and use the crosswalk. In a sense, this is on them. I mean, they shouldn't have been crossing here. What is the human thing to do in this kind of situation? What what it, What is the thing that I think our basic humanity kind of compels us to do in a situation where we know we have people who are vulnerable and exposed who, uh, you know, are at risk here. What, what, what do you think we should do? 
Well, I, I think if you were to ask an engineer, and I have in my head this aerial photo of one of these you know, massive seven-by-seven seven intersections, and say, what if we designed into that to make up for the mistakes of the motorist? We have designed wider travel lanes so they have more operating room and they don't encroach over into somebody else's lane, and we could debate the merits of that. We've designed a more generous turning radius so they have more room and don't have to be precise in making that turn. And I've been on safety audits where they've even, you know, evaluated where to put the signal controller box in order to avoid the likelihood it gets taken out by a turning motorist. And so if you went through just, and and you could probably identify more of, of road design features intended to make up for the mistake of a motorist. And going back to the Springfield one, name one design element that is in there to make up for the mistake of a pedestrian, if that's how you want to phrase it. And it goes back to that desire line. They can't make a mistake. Heck, we can't even get no right turns and no protective permissives in school zones in a lot of cases. That's basically saying, well, you, the kid walking to school, you better not make a mistake. And I think we just don't go and consider those types of factors. If we look at the percentage of our population, that is youth. And some of the TRB research has shown that, you know, a lot of the things that we have good intentions of teaching children in crossing the streets are just things children don't have the cognitive abilities to do. They can't remember 30 different nuanced rules in how to cross a street and how to look for everything. They can't judge the speed of cars very well. And at the other end of the age spectrum, and it's why I get frustrated with the things of like, well, pedestrians just look up. Well, if, if I'm an older adult, I'm worried about a trip hazard. I'm worried about other things. It's why they look down. It's why they can't. And, and they've got other limited mobility. And, and at that in, and you look at that being 35% of the population, I, we make travel lanes wider if 5% of the cars are trucks. But we won't accommodate safer pedestrians when we know that 35% of them have a limitation that that requires the, the highest sense of security when crossing a road. That, to me, is the major discrepancy. Don Koselek, he's with Alta Planning and Design. There's a growing number of really good people in this realm that are doing good work. And Don, you're among the top of them. I hope the city of Springfield actually gets a hold of you, uh, or if not, you know, one of your peers to help them out on this. But if not the city of Springfield, I hope that other cities that are struggling here uh, get a hold of you and, and get a hold of other people who are expanding the toolbox and expanding the conversation. We, we, there's no reason for inaction in things like this. So, I just want to thank you for taking the time. Thank you for everything that you do and, and your expertise. And please, let's let's do this again. Uh, I would I love chatting with you. Yeah, and I would say that the mutual respect there, Chuck. I think you have an ability with your organization to more independently insert yourself in these things. And I think we also need more professionals who are willing to do that. We always walk a fine line in consulting because it's kind of driven by you know, what you can generate of just how bold we can be. But but I will say part of my success, especially with my own company, was people hiring me because I wasn't afraid to question the common engineering conventions and I wasn't afraid to, to question DOT and, and stuff like you and others in the profession has what has also empowered me. So I think we all have to work together to do it. Well, I was accused in Springfield here of doing a PR stunt and 
you know, okay, uh, yes, we're trying to draw attention to something. I'm ready to go. And my hope is that by drawing attention to this one, which is a, a really, really bad situation, uh, not only can we save lives here, but we can actually prompt other places to do this too. There's a lot of great elected officials who want something to be different. There's a lot of great people in cities who want things to be different. Uh, we just got to break through this kind of log jam, this, this, uh, kind of backward inertia and get things moving. And I, I think once we do, I think engineers are going to be really helpful in fixing these problems, you know? Yeah, I agree. And like I said, some of the best ones I've worked with are those that either had reached a point in their career or had enough political backing to go out and do that. And so in some ways, it, it's as much of a, of a corporate culture issue that has to change along with the political culture. Yeah. Don, thanks so much. We'll talk again soon. Thanks. All right. Thanks, Chuck. Take care. Bye-bye. And thanks, everybody, for listening. Keep doing what you can to build strong towns. Take care. We need your help. If you think the Strong Towns message is important, don't keep it to yourself. Pass it on. You can get more information and sign up to be a member of Strong Towns at strongtowns.org. Drastic times require what? Drastic measures, yes! Who said that? They know that America's one big pothole right now. Bill, 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 Bill. That's the story. Chuck Marone, this has been fascinating. Who made the city? I like you. I like your vision of the of the world. The United Nations Earth Summit, Agenda 21. Yeah.